Keep your hymnals out as we'll be looking at articles 4, 5, and 7 tonight in the Belgic Confession, page 855, and then the page is following that. We'll be turning in God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as it speaks to the matters before us of how the Bible is complete, authoritative, and enough. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, page 986, and we'll look at Galatians chapter 1 a bit later in tonight's sermon. Last week we saw how God makes himself known. He's not silent. He's seen in creation. He reveals himself uh, more openly in his word. The, writers of the, conf- or the writer of the confession says in Articles 2 and 3, the Bible is his word. It teaches all that we need to know. For his glory and for our salvation is how Article 2 puts it at the end. Tonight we're going to be looking at what books make up his word or what is the content of his word. We call this the canon from that Greek word which speaks of a rule or standard. We might think of a ruler, how we measure uh, things, what we might uh, the, the way we speak of it as that standard, it's used in this way in the New Testament. Paul talks about it in Galatians 6 when he talks about walking according to the rule of faith, the standard of faith. And again in Philippians 3, Paul talks about walking according to the rule of maturity. We'll also be looking at what we mean when we speak of the authority of the Bible and what we're saying when we confess the sufficiency of the Bible. Article 4, we have a listing of the canonical books, those that make up the standard of our faith that guide us. They're the 66 books that we're familiar with. I'm not going to read that article just to draw your attention to it. I'll read the opening, Article 4, Belgian Confession. We include in the Holy Scripture the two volumes of the Old and New Testaments. They are canonical books with which there can be no quarrel at all. In the Church of God, the list is as follows, and it gives them there. From the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, we say to ourselves, do we really have to study about the canon? Is this really all that meaningful in our confession? Is it something that we need to review? And the answer is yes, because we are quickly pulled astray. We're distracted. We find other things that catch our attention and other things that we wish were a standard that could be included. And even amongst Christians today, we, all, most Christians would agree that God still speaks. I would say all Christians agree that God still speaks today. The question is, where does God still speak today? Where do we look? And there are many answers to that. Some will say in visions and dreams and ecstatic prophecy. And if the Bible is clear that God speaks And he still speaks in the 66 books of the Bible. I've mentioned the the book uh, by Kevin DeYoung on this subject, and I'm going to read a little uh, story from it this evening. He talks here about where do we find God speaking. And he says that he he recounts this. He says, a number of years ago, there was an anonymous article in Christianity Today magazine entitled, My Conversation with God. Here's how it began. Does God still speak? 
I grew up hearing testimonies about it, but until October 2005, I couldn't say it had ever happened to me. I'm a middle-aged professor of theology at a well-known Christian university. I've written award-winning books. My name is on the masthead of the magazine, Christianity Today. For years, I've taught that God still speaks, but I couldn't testify to it personally. I can only do so now anonymously for reasons I hope will be clear. A year after hearing God's voice, I still can't talk or even think about my conversation with God without being overcome by emotion. Now the professor goes on to talk about what God said to him or her, that God supernaturally gave, oh, it's a him, it gave him a book outline and a book title and directed him to use the money from the book to help a young man go to school and prepare for ministry. So he got this from the Lord and He was finally convinced that God does still speak today and does so uh, in these particularly specific and special ways. Now, Kevin DeYoung goes on to say, well, that's, that's, that's a very fine story in many ways, except in this crucial way, it gives the impression that God does not normally speak to us personally. The article leaves us feeling as though God's speaking to us through the Scriptures, is an inferior and less exciting, less edifying means of communication. He writes, we can't help but conclude, yes, the Bible is important, but oh, what a treasure it would be if I could experience God really speaking to me. If only I could hear from the sure and infallible voice of God. Well, and he goes on to say, well, we can, and we do. God speaks through His Word. He continues to speak. He continues to speak pointedly. And He calls us to listen for Him there. Many would argue that the confessions should have something more practical. Maybe we need to have articles on Christian living or articles on evangelism or articles on some other matter. And we would not disagree that these are important. We hear the Word. It speaks to those matters. It speaks to Christian living. It speaks to evangelism. It speaks to these other issues. But that's the whole point. Where do we go to hear about how to live the Christian life? Where do we go to listen for God's voice to direct us in evangelism? So we're not just being pragmatic. Well, that worked for that church over there. Let's do that. Well, we go to God's Word because God still speaks and still guides us through His Word, by His Spirit. If we don't go to the Bible, we stumble right out of the gate and set up other standards for for what we're going to do. And quite often in our Western, uh, particularly North American context, is pragmatism. What's going to work? That's what we really want. We don't know whether it's right or wrong, but if it's working, it's got to be right. Right? (laughs) At least that's the standard we set or we believe to be true. But the devil is in the details. He can get us to do a lot of things that appear very successful, but can also lead us away from truth and to get us to stop talking about subjects that we ought to talk about and just go on our merry way with pragmatism as our guide. Well, why are these 66 books then considered to be canonical? Why are they the ones that we look to? Article 5 I want you to listen as we read this. You can follow along. I invite you to do that. Article 5 there in the Belgic Confession on, with the heading, The Authority of Scripture. We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. 
We believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. Note the opening words of the article. We receive all these books. We believe without a doubt these items contained in them. A bit different from the articles we've had up to this point. Article 1 and 3 says we believe and confess. Here it says we receive. It's more passive. It's a It's not us rendering judgment upon the Word. That's why many will say the the author of the Belgian Confession chose the Word, and I think it's accurate. He chose this Word because Scripture teaches us, this is scriptural now, not his idea, but Scripture teaches us that we don't pronounce judgment on the Word of God and say, yeah, that fits with with my idea of what God might say, but rather we recognize God's Word. Here the word is receive. Kelvin's helpful in pointing out that the canon, again the standard, is not determined by the church but by the witness of the Spirit and Scripture's self-authentication, which we'll get to in a moment. Luther declared that the church was founded on the Scriptures. Ephesians 2.20, they're founded upon the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. That's biblical, Ephesians 2.20. It is the church founded on the Scriptures and not the Scriptures upon the church. As though the church says, yes, this is God's Word. This this we recognize. Well, children, I was watching some of you play soccer yesterday, and I just want to use this to try to illustrate the point I'm making. When you play an organized sport, there's rules. You don't go out on the field and say, well, I like these rules, and I'm going to play soccer by these rules and not those rules. Or I like this and I don't like that. There's, a, there's, there's rules. There's a standard given. And we recognize, maybe this is a poor parallel, but Scripture as such. These are the rules, the standard by which we live. We don't come and say, well, I like this part. I don't like that part. I recognize this part, but I, I reject that part. Not only would it be chaotic, but you would have, in the end, something that doesn't even resemble a soccer game, or doesn't even resemble a church. It's more of a club or some such thing. The point is the Bible isn't made by the church. Rather, rather it's recognized as from God. One author says it this way, the books of the canon were canonical the moment they were written, and they were recognized as from God in time. Now, there are many examples of that in Scripture. The uh, Gita de Bray doesn't come up with this just off the top of his head. He's reading Scripture. It wasn't that the people approved the word so much as they received it. Now, I want to direct your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as I read these verses and see if you can't hear what is uh, being presented here and how this comes out in this confession. Starting verse 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is the Word of God. We give thanks to God... I meant to put this header. These are marks of true conversion. Paul is, is articulating uh, marks of true conversion. So think of that as you listen. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith 
and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know this? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction, they were convicted that the word that was being preached was of God. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us. They imitated them, recognizing that that was the call to follow after Christ, even as they followed Christ. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. I just want to focus on that verse 6 that's there that Paul gives thanks for what? He gives thanks that they received the word. They didn't look at it and say, well, let's, 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 be, let, let's see once. That's different than what the Bereans were doing in, in, back in the book of Acts where they were taking Scripture and interpreting Scripture to see if what Paul was saying is true. There, he's saying here, you've received what is from God. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2, same book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul goes on, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This idea of reception, receiving the word of God, not casting judgment. We see this throughout the the scriptures, Nehemiah 8, where Ezra stands up and reads the law. The people don't, don't bring a judgment upon the word. They listen to it and they receive it as the word of God. Isaiah, when he says, for thus says the Lord, or the Lord has spoken to me, he doesn't question it. He says, this is of the Lord. I've received it from, from the Lord. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. How do we know the word of God to be the word of God. Well, Article 5 says we receive all these books and we believe without a doubt all things contained in them because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God. That's the first thing we want to note. It's not, it's not insignificant that the church receives and approves them, though he writes that here. He says the church does receive and approve them. That, it's not insignificant. The recorded history of the church is important that we might see how the church has received these words and, and, and passed them on, and the church is built and remains on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. But first and foremost, the Spirit opens our eyes to see the word of God, how he builds the church. And the Spirit is not some sort of mystical uh, uh, experience. Rather, he helps us to see the Word and to receive it and to be transformed by it, by the Word written. The only cure for such, uh, for, for any spiritual blindness in this sense, any blindness is that we would pray that God would open our eyes, for we are blind in ourselves. We cannot see it for ourselves. We want to resist all authority, particularly the authority of God. But here, the author, the confession goes on. We receive all these books and believe them without a doubt because also they prove themselves to be from God. Even the blind are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. The end of article 5. The Bible proves itself to be God's life-giving, life-changing word. Each time a person turns from living for self and begins to live for God. That's a, that's a key component. Turns from living for self and begins living for 
God. The Word of God is powerful. The appeal of that of the end of Article 5 then. What is the appeal? Even the blind are able to see the things predicted in the Scriptures that they do happen. It's an appeal to the accuracy of the prophetic predictions recorded by prophets, the holy men of old. We could, there's so many of them. If you've ever done Evangelism Explosion, you find that chapter on all of the prophecies that have been fulfilled. You're blown away by how many there are. But in, but in God's word to Abraham, when he says, uh, your, your descendants will be 400 years in captivity and be, uh, and be released, that it was told him long before it occurred. Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah's virgin birth 700 years before It occurred, Isaiah records the Lord's word concerning the Persian king Cyrus as the means by which the Lord would deliver his people from captivity. Nothing that one could imagine, but rather one receives, calling him by name hundreds of years before he's he's born. Old Testament speaks of, uh, in detail, about the sufferings and, and the death of our Lord and the outpouring of the Spirit and, and many others. Reflection on the word. Many of these prophecies contain remarkable and specific details which have been confirmed not only by the Bible but also by secular history and archaeological finds. Other prophetic predictions such as the preservation of the church, the spread of the gospel to the nations, all of these things are being shown to be true. God is working them out. He's revealing that His word which declares these truths speaks clearly and shows us that it is from him. speaks of the increasing wickedness of the world. That too, fulfilled before our very eyes. And the inescapable conclusion, as the writer of the the confession says, is this, the Bible is from God. Well, we come then to the sufficiency of Scripture. Kevin DeYoung, again in his book, asks a number of searching questions as he speaks on the matter of whether the Bible is enough. He says, have you ever wondered if the Bible is really able to help you with your deepest problem? Have you struggled to know what to do with your life and wished you had some special word from the Lord? Have you ever wished for a more direct, more personal revelation than what you get from, slow, from slowly reading through the Bible? Have you, have you ever wanted to take something away from the Bible to make it more palatable? Then he says, you're struggling with the sufficiency of Scripture. Is it sufficient? Is it enough? And one of the best ways that we can bring this doctrine into focus focus is ask ourselves what he's basically asking in this list of questions. And the question is this, what am I looking for in Scripture? Why has God given me the Word? Now, in a very North American materialistic mindset, you say, well, he's given me promises about, you know, um, uh, the prayer of Jabez. I pray for the land and I get it, you know, or, or some such thing. And we, we turn it into a book about God uh, uh, working for us and, 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 and carrying out our fondest ambitions and all such things. But what is, what is the, the word really for? Is it for secret knowledge? Is it for a pep talk? Is it to tell me the name of the company I should work for somewhere in code in the Bible and I just have to find it, my next job? These are the desires I have when I come to the Bible, then I'll find it hard to confess that the Bible is sufficient. 
But don't forget what we've already seen in summary in the confession. Why is God given the word? Listen to Article 3 again, a portion of Article 3. God having a great care for our salvation has committed his word to writing that we might have all that we need for life and godliness. It's all there. He has a special care for us and what? For our salvation. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we move forward. But listen to Article 7 now, the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. There's that aspect of salvation again. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add to or subtract from the Word of God, this plainly (coughs) demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time or persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. For all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule as we are taught to do by the apostles when they say, test the spirits to see if they are of God. And also, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Rather lengthy article. This afternoon I was reading on the history of a Christian college uh, what some of its challenges were early on, the late 60s, early 70s, and it was interesting to see the question came up, what is a truly Christian higher education? There were people arguing, well, there's a, uh, a pietistic isolationist mentality. We just circle the wagons. We just look at Scripture. We don't take into account anything else where we, we, just, we just keep our heads down and and, and we're, and we're, conver- uh, we're, we're uh, conversionists. We want uh, uh, everybody to be converted. But in the meantime, we don't really care what's going on in the world. That's how it was framed. It's not, I don't think, a fair representation. Then there's the other side that says, no, we're transformationalists. We're engaged in the world. We want all these other disciplines, all of these other journals and whatnot to inform uh, our studies. Again, that may not be a fair estimation, but there was these, I'm, doing, I'm saying it in a bit extreme so we can see the two sides and there was this argument that looking to Scripture was biblicist. It was simplistic, that we can't just look at Scripture. And the whole idea of academic freedom comes in. Well, what, are we, what can we look at? What can we study? Can we engage the culture? Can we watch what culture produces in order to critique it? Or are we not even supposed to look at that? It was a, it's an interesting article. I had, it's a book that was put out a long time ago, and I'm, I'm just reading it now. But the... Uh, the issues are, are put right before us. Can is the Bible sufficient? And there is a there is a there's a very clear, as I understand it, very clear conclusion in this, and that is 
The Bible is the standard by which we measure all of these other things. And so if we set it aside and say, well, no, we're going to go for this other more culturally engaging model and leave the Bible to the side because it's a bit outdated, well, you're going to see institutions falter. You're going to see institutions taking U-turns and zigzags, and we see that today. I think if, if those who are arguing for, maybe I'm giving them a, a, an unfair read or, or not an accurate read, but I think if, if those who are speaking about cultural engagement, setting the Bible aside a little bit more, saw what has happened today, they might cling a little more tightly, I would hope, to, to God's Word and, 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 and address these issues in a more, in a more uh, uh, careful way with the Bible informing the discussion more than what the latest journal has come up with, uh, what the latest uh, expert has said. Well, all that to say, the Bible is sufficient, and it is not wrong to speak of it as being given to us as the greatest story ever told, which is the story about a Redeemer who has come to rescue us from our sin. It's not It's not wrong to speak of, of Christ continually, as though that's too pietistic, that's too narrow. You're only worried about converting people. We're worried about what their daily life looks like. It's not, it's not either or. But to give people hope and to give them a, a certainty and a peace and a joy now, they have to have a right relationship with the Lord also. And so Christ needs to be presented. The scriptures continually bring that in. Over and over. And that is what we need. And we live in a rapidly changing world. We're tempted to think about, uh, think uh, that things are changing so fast, we need to make changes. And, and I think we get swept up in that sometimes. And, 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 and in part, it's true. Things change. There are, there are ethical issues that your parents, grandparents, my parents, grandparents would have never thought about, never thought of engaging that come with new technologies or new, new medical procedures and so on. Yet the Bible is sufficient to answer all of these issues. How is it that we engage all of this change, all of this technology to the glory of God, recognizing the limits that he has placed upon us, recognizing the patterns and the, and the process that he has given to us? Not just using this idea, well, if, if we can do it, we ought to do it. That's a dangerous, a dangerous thing to do. Though our cultural principles change and technologies change, the same question is before us. What has God said? And our response must not change where God speaks. We must obey. The Bible is filled of, with examples of this. Life of the saints, Elijah standing, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Noah, Abraham. It's throughout. They're not identified as pietistic. They're identified as God-fearing believers who seek to live for the Lord in their various circumstances, knowing that God will deliver them. What's natural to us is we want to deny God. We want to defeat God. We want to reject God. When technology allows us to play around with biology and other things, we begin to think, well, we don't need God. We can pretty much figure it out from here. Now we know where life begins. At least we claim we do very proud, in a very proud way. 
And we think, well, we can, we can determine what life looks like. This is age-old rebellion of man, albeit beefed up with new technologies. And the restlessness that comes to us is because we are at odds with God, not because we haven't been given many blessings. Scripture, in the midst of all of this, still speaks perfectly, completely, clearly to our deepest need and also identifies our deepest enemy. We recognize the devil, great accuser, the world, and its attempts to turn us away from truth in our own flesh, our own weak flesh. doesn't mean we have an opposition to our neighbor. We want to see our, our neighbor hear the truth, but we also recognize that they serve and live in a different way. Their, their sufficiency is not bound by Scripture. Their, their motto is, whatever is, is going to work for me, however I want to, whatever lived experience I want to have, which we cannot follow. And, and I want you to notice something else about Article 7. It doesn't just say that everything is taught, uh, everything in, one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught. It also says this, for since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at length, we also see it sufficient. It's not just know this to be saved, it's also know this that you might live. You might live. Everything that you need to live in a God-glorifying, God-pleasing way as found in the Scriptures so that we're equipped for every good work. We don't have to look somewhere else. Well, I don't know if the Bible really speaks to this area or that area. It, it just, it's unclear to me. We need to live, look deeper. We need to, to look more carefully for the entire manner of service which God requires of us is also described in the Word of God at length. Many of false, there are many false gospels presented today. You could think of, of many that are being declared today. Freedom is denying your body and, your, and living your lived experience. Joy is following your feelings. These are false gospels. Oh, they say this is good news. This, is, this will set you free and you'll be, you'll be wonderful. You'll, you'll never feel so alive. And yet these are, these are lies. There's no good in messages which call us to reject God's word in his way. If we had more time, we could look at the parable of the two sons and the prodigal son that goes away, takes all that his, his father has, has set aside for him. He runs off. What does he do? He squanders it in unholy living. You can look there more for, for the outcome of, of that particular approach. Well, I've, I just need money. I just need uh, uh, the world. And then I'll really find what it means to live. And what he finds is... He needed a father. When religious leaders tell us to reject the Old Testament, we must reject that message. When preachers say that self-esteem is what God esteems, we must remind ourselves that we think more highly of ourselves and we think of God, we're being fed a false message. This is not something that the apostles never had to deal with, and so we're just, we just now are, are learning how important this is, as though the Bible somehow stopped and is no longer speaking to us today. So we, we need to be careful. And God has given us his word to regulate, found, and establish our faith. That's Article 5. Back to Article 5. 
And we sometimes think of that, well, that's doctrinal, regulating, founding, establishing. But, it, but it's also, as we see in, in Article 7 in Scripture, for our lives, the entire, that we, we might know how to live. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, right doctrine, right teaching leads to right living. God still speaks through his word for our good. So what difference does the sufficiency of Scripture make for your Christian life? It keeps a check on our personal agendas, personal goals. It keeps a check on our corporate life. It, it, it tells us how we, do wor- how we are to worship, that we don't just take in whatever we think might make things better from our perspective. But what has God commanded? And Paul addresses that in Galatians chapter 1. I just want to look at that very briefly. Galatians chapter 1, he's, he's writing to, the, to the, those in Galatians, he's saying, what, what, is, what is going on with you? He says, I've, I've proclaimed the gospel, and now he says, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You're listening to these other ideas. Not that there, and then he goes on, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one who uh, we preach to you, let him be accursed. Very strong about his words here. The gospel is not to be tampered with. Since we confess the perfection of Scripture, another way of saying this sufficiency of Scripture, we know that it will speak to every part of our lives. We don't have to wonder if it's going to be relevant. We have to see how it's relevant, how it speaks, or it certainly does. Again, the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in the Bible at great length, equipping us for every good work. I want to close with a story that Kevin DeYoung records in his book on this subject. Listen to what he writes. In my previous Denomination. I remember being at a denominational meeting as a part of an advisory group where we were told to find our quote-unquote norms as a community. What's our standard? What's going to guide us? When I suggested our first norm should be testing everything against the Word of God, I was told, and this is an exact quote, that, quote, we are not here to open our Bibles, unquote. Wow. The goal of the group apparently, and this is his personal reflection, the goal of the group apparently was that we would listen to our hearts and listen to each other, but not so much that we would listen to God. Later at that same meeting, a pastor from South America addressed the whole body upon noticing an advertisement in the back for an event where we could, quote, discover, unquote, God's vision for our denomination. The man remarked, discover? I hope you find what you're looking for and try not to take too long. Yeah, it was uh, a pressing question or a pressing observation that there was an issue here because he goes on in the American church, it is our tendency to plan and dream and scheme and vision cast and engage in mutual discernment all while God's clear voice lies neglected on our laps. Now, dear people of God, I want to end with that plea. This is where God speaks. It is sufficient. It is enough. It is our authority. 
and it regulates our lives. So congregation, go to the scriptures. Listen for the voice of Jesus and then receive that word. Believe what he says. That you would recognize that God speaks yet today for all that you need to bring him honor and glory and to call yourselves to faith and others. Let's ask him to help us do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and that it is that which is enough, that which is authoritative, which is complete. We're not waiting for further revelation. We're not looking for another authority. And we know that in it we can hear you speak. We pray for the church. We pray, O Lord, that you would make her strong in times of adversity where authority and change continually challenge, where authority is always changing, where it seems the only constant is change. May we be well established. May your church be well established upon the word. And may we confidently go forth then, knowing that you will speak to us and that you will hear us in our need and point us in the way to go, such that we might look to you, not to ourselves, as we seek to live in this world, in these days that you've given to us, in this place where you have put us. Hear us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.